Okay, good morning. Boker Tov to everyone. <laughs> okay, great to see everyone. We have the privilege, the Shabbos. We'll begin the third book of the Torah, Sefer Vayikra. The book of Leviticus. All right. I like that. All right. Okay, page 544 in the Orts Girl Stone Chumash. As always, we'll try to give a little bit of an overview of the Parsha and touch on some of the themes in the Parsha. And then we'll get to some uh, specifics together. So Vayikra, of course, is a Kol Torah's Kohanim. Vayikra is the book that deals with the laws for priests. We went through Shmos, or we went through, just to give the uh, summary again. In Bereshus, we saw the birth of a family. We saw from the beginning of mankind, through the birth of the first, called Jewish, although that's debatable, family. And by the end of uh, Sefer Bereshus, we had worked out all the kinks, we had worked out all of the troubles and travails of how we function as a family. Despite the sibling rivalry and the parent favoritism and some of even the marital strife, we had worked it out so that by the end of Sefer Bracious, at least on the surface, Yosef and his brothers had reconciled, the family has gotten along, the next generation, we bless our children to be like Menashe and Ephraim because they are the first generation who get along wonderfully together and that is our ultimate hope and aspiration for our children as well. That's safe for British. Shmos, we saw the birth not of a family, but we saw the development, the transition into the birth of a people. From a family into a nation that was forged uh, in, the, uh, in the Kura Barzel of Mitzrayim. This family was hardened in the iron furnace of Egypt. And we emerged from Mitzrayim, the hardship, the prevail, the oppression, the persecution, as a people. A people capable of doing chesed with one another, a people with a shared mission, a people with a shared experience, and a people with now a uh, common destiny. And we came out and became a covenantal community when we stood at our Sinai, and when we were given the Torah, and when we were given a charge for how to function among the nations of the world and what to teach the nations of the world. And in the second half of Shemos, as we studied, moved to the building of the Mishkan, the Chet Egel, and so on. So now that we were a family, now that we've become a nation, now we're ready to learn how to function. And at the core, at the center of our functioning is the Mishkan, the spiritual centerpiece of the Jewish people. And at the center of the Mishkan are the Kohanim, are the priests who performed the Avodah, the service, in the Mishkan, later in the Beis HaMikdash. And Sefer Vayikra, while somewhat tedious, technical, detailed, and to a certain degree, um, something that doesn't resonate so well with us because we don't have a Mishkan, nevertheless, both because it will apply again, please God, in the future when Mashiach should come, and also because so many of the messages that we can extract are as relevant as, uh, as ever, Sefer Vayikra is so critically important. Vayikra Moshe, God calls Moshe, we're going to come back to the Aleph Zeira, the strange small Aleph that begins our Parsha, that begins our book. God summons Moshe to the Ol Moed, and he introduces him to the laws of the sacrifices. First, in Shmos, we saw the construction of the Mishkan. We saw the design and the building of the vessels in the Mishkan. And now we're ready for the functionality. What all of that was designed to do and to achieve was to create a sense of closeness and to be able to create an opportunity for atonement with the Ribona Shalom. So we have the general rules of sacrifices and how they work. And then the rest of our parsha goes through the details of the different categories, different types of sacrifices. We have the Korban Ola, the elevation offering, which comes from a sheep or a goat. 
And then we have the elevation, the carbon ola that comes from uh, fowl, from, from birds. Minauf ola carbon ola shem, minatorim, We have the carbon mincha, a flower offering. Um, we have, if you go to page 552, spend a moment on this. The Torah says, page 552, in the article Stone Chumash, Perik Beis, chapter 2, verse 13, Yud Gimel. Torah tells us, V'chol korban minchascha ba'melach timlach, v'lo sashpis melach briselokecha me'al minchasecha, al kol korbancha takriv melach. Every korban that was offered in the Beis HaMikdash had to be accompanied by, had to be seasoned with salt. Here the Torah tells us, every meal offering with salt, you may not just continue the salt of your God's covenant, for upon your meal offering, on every offering shall you offer salt. You know, to us, salt is insignificant. We talk about somebody being a salt of the earth. Salt is a staple. Salt is insignificant. Salt is something we take for granted. But salt is actually a precious commodity. Salt is something that wars have been fought over. Salt has served as currencies in history. Salt is actually an indispensable commodity. And here the Torah tells us that no sacrifice can be offered without salt. So much so that there's an expression. Melach bris elokecha. Salt of the covenant with God. What is the significance of salt? Why is salt so important here? What is the significance of salt that you can't have uh, sacrifices in the Besamekdash without salt? So Rashi says, bris melach bris, pasikigimbo Rashi. Sha bris krusa le melach, nisheshes yime brishes. Shaluftachu amayim atachtonam likar be mezbeach melach. Rashi is alluding to a medrash. The medrash tells us that on the second day of on the second day of the creation of the world, God made a division, a divide. He separated the heavenly waters and the earthly waters. Water then was united, and God distinguished. It's hard for us to relate to. We know the earthly waters. What does it mean, the idea that there's heavenly waters? This is not talking about the clouds, the precipitation in the sky. It's talking about the firmament, which is beyond that above that, but whatever it means, there used to be one united body of water, and on the second day of creation, God divided this one body of water into two, the heavenly waters and the earthly waters. And the Medrash that Rashi here is referencing, the Medrash says that the earthly waters said to Hashem, that's not right, what are you leaving us down here on earth? The other waters that were separated are up in the heavens. They're close, they're near to you, the Rebona Shalom. What are we doing down here? So Kadesh Baruch Hu told these earthly waters that contained in them salt, not to worry, you two can be close to me. How will I ensure perpetuity that forever you two will be close to me? You have no reason to be jealous at all of the heavenly waters because you will have a share, you will have a portion, you will have a role to play in the Avodah. Every time a sacrifice is offered, salt that comes from the sea, that comes from the earthly waters, will be offered together. That's Rashi. A bris krusula melach, that the, there's a bris melach, the covenant with the salt. God made a promise to the salt as a symbol of the earthly waters, not to worry. You two can be close to me. You will be present. You will be offered at every, at every korban. What's the significance? So Rabbeinu Yosef Pachor Shur, one of the Balei Atosos, who was a student of Rabbeinu Tam, Rabbi Yosef Bechor Shur says that salt is a davar hamiskayim. Salt, we know, is a preservative. If you want something to last, 
then you immerse it or you coat it, you sprinkle it with salt. Salt has the capacity, has the quality that it makes something less. It's a davar hamaskayim. So Kosh Baruch Hu says the Rabbi Yosef Bechoshor, Kosh Baruch Hu said that the carbon mincha and other carbonas have to be offered with salt so that we would know bris kayim la'olam kapara that the covenant God made, like salt which endures the covenant of the sacrifices, the capacity to achieve kapara, the ability to earn forgiveness, to press, ref- press refresh, to restart our lives, to overcome and atone for our mistakes, that like salt is something that God preserves. It's something that God makes last. That's the interpretation of Yosef B'choshor, a Talmud of Rabbeinu Tam. Many other interpretations have been offered regarding this. Salt has actually a double capacity. On the, wall t- on the one hand, salt can make something erode also. Salt makes things erode. Salt makes things fall apart. If you uh, put something in salt and you leave it for too long, then it turns it, instead of from pickling it, it will make it spoil. So salt on the one hand can act as a preservative and on the other hand can act as a source of erosion. And that too is a hint to us and our capacity and our behavior and the choices we make and the consequences that they can bring. So the presence of salt on the Mizbeah is a reminder to us that our actions can preserve, our actions can unite, our actions can prolong and create continuity, or our actions can erode and can destroy, can be destructive. We actually have the practice... We commemorate this bris melach of our Pasuk. Something again, here's a perfect example where you read Parshas Vayikra and you say, how do I relate to any of this? What does that have to do with me? I have no base of Mikdash, I have no Mishkan, I don't offer these Kabbalos. What does this have to do with me? It has everything to do with everyone in here. Because we all observe a custom based on this. If you look at Shulchan Aruch Simen, Kuf Samach Zayin, Se'if Hey. The Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law says, and a person should not make hamotzi, don't break bread, until you have before you salt or something to dip in. Yeah, something to dip in. Right? You ever come to the Shabbos table, you have a simcha, you can't find the salt. So instead of prolonging or making a half sick, if they have some dips already on the table, you dip a little bit of chal and dip. The idea is that you don't need it plain. The idea is that it's seasoned, that it's dipped in something. So it's preferable, of course, it's ideal to have salt. A person should always be vigilant to have salt. But if you don't have salt, then the Shulchan Aruch already says that even if you have something else that seasons. In order for you to complement the bread that you've broken. If the bread is, um, what do you call it, a nikia, uh, like a clean flour. Oh, it's already seasoned. Or let's say in your challah recipe, you called for salt in the recipe. You don't have to wait for salt. Says the Shulchan Aruch already codifying the Salacha, that strictly speaking, if your challah, if your bread had seasoning in it, such as salt or otherwise, you don't need salt. The salt is already represented in the recipe. You don't need to actually dip it, or you don't need to have it in salt. Comes along the Ramah, Rav Moshe Isilis, the authority of Ashkenazim, comes along the Ramah and says, Mitzvah kol shulchan melach, even if your challah was seasoned, even if your gishmaka recipe already called for the perfect amount of seasoning, nevertheless, says the Ramah, we still have the custom, unlike the Mechaber, we still have the custom to bring salt. Why? 
V'ne'emar kol korbanecha takrit melech. Says the Ramah, quoting our parsha, because our shulchan at home is like the mizbeach. Our shulchan is our is our uh, altar. It's where we achieve our atonement. And just like the altar always had to have salt reflecting the bris melach, so to the altar of our home, the sacred space. Where's the holiest place in our home? It's not the mezuzah. It's not your little base medrash with your farm. It's not where you hold, keep your towels filling. It's not even the bedroom, although it should be a holy place. The holiest place in the Jewish home is the shulchan. Is a person's dining room table. Do you host guests there, or are you selfish? Do you talk to Torah, or do you speak about the rabbi? Do you talk about... What do you talk about at your table? How do you behave at your table? What do you talk about at your behavior at your table? Our table is our... Is our Mizbeach. Is our Mizbeach. In fact, Rabbeinu Bechaya in Sefer Shmos quotes a minhag, going back to the Middle Ages, that because our dining room table has the status of our Mizbeach today, there was a custom that when a person passed away, they would disassemble the dining room table and make a coffin out of it and bury the person in their dining room table. If you think this was only an ancient custom dating back to Rabbeinu Bechaya in Spain in the Middle Ages, as recently as the Rugged Shavagom, you know Rabbi Tites from Elizabeth, his Rebbe, the Rugged Shavagom, the great Rugged Shavar was buried in his dining room table. So, and what's the idea of that custom? The idea is that when you ascend on high and you reach the Almighty, you bring the merits of your dining room table. Now, if your dining room table is going to say, don't let this guy in, don't let this woman in, you should know when the shul called them to have guests, they never said yes. They never had people over. They had people over, it was only their friends, it was never people who were otherwise alone. And around this table, they never shared Divrei Torah, they never had inspiring conversation. You know what they did? They talked Lashonara and gossip, they shared the latest this. So if that's what your dining room table is going to say, leave the dining room table. <laughs> but if your dining room table, as it's supposed to do, is going to advocate for you with all the merits that you've earned at it, that is the source of that, of that minhag. So the Ramah writes, mitzvah, it's a very interesting choice of words, mitzvah, not minhag, mitzvah, la'aviyala, kol shulchan melach, is a mitzvah to bring to the table salt, why? Because our table is doma lemezbeach. Ha'achila, the way we eat, is kekorban. The attitude we bring towards eating. Are we gluttonous? Do we stuff our face? Or are we dignified? Do we eat with integrity? Do we just eat the food? Or do we make a bracha? Do we think? Are we mindful? Are we slow? Do we say a bracha? Do we thank Hashem? Wow. It's unbelievable bracha. I have this dining room table with this ambiance, with the people sitting around it, with these incredible delicacies, with this delicious food, and the capacity to have a roof over my head, all contained in the bracha. Do we say a bracha? Ha'achila kekorban. The way we eat is like the carbon that we bring. I'll tell you an amazing interpretation. I think it was of the Chida, I don't remember. We shared it in the afternoon call a few years ago. We're learning Arve Psachim, and we did the sugya of Kiddush B'makam Suda. Kiddush B'makam Suda, the Gemara has a discussion that in order to fulfill the mitzvah, the obligation of Kiddush, you have to recite Kiddush B'makam Suda, in the place that you eat. In other words, if you make Kiddush and take a sip of grape juice, but you don't follow it up with at least a Mizonos, and preferably even Hamotzi, then you've not fulfilled Kiddush. Kiddush can't be in isolation. Kiddush has to be in association or in connection with the meal you're about to eat. And there's a big machlokas there, Rashbam and Tosfos. Is that a din in Kiddush or is that a din in Suda? Is it that a Suda that's not preceded by a Kiddush is Nishken Suda? Is it that if you have a meal but you didn't say Kiddush first, 
that's not a Shabbos meal, that might as well be Tuesday. Or is it that, no, if you say Kiddush and you didn't follow it up with a Suda, that's Nishkin Kiddush, that's not Kiddush. In order for it to be Kiddush, it has to precede the Suda. It's a wonderful Hakira, we talked all about it in the afternoon call a few years ago. So this, the strict translation of the words Kiddush Mimakam Suda means that you have to recite Kiddush in the place of your meal. That's a complicated Allah issue. When we have a Kiddush in Shul and it's back here in this room, how do I recite Kiddush in the front of the Shul? It has to be Mimakam Suda. So there's all these details. If you see the place that you're going to be eating, even if you're at a distance, that might qualify as B'makam Suda. Or I eat some crackers where I make Kiddush, you're Yotze with my Kiddush, and my Kiddush is B'makam Suda. So when you get to the Kiddush, you've been Yotze. That's a big halachic discussion. I think it's the Chida who translates the words Kiddush B'makam Suda differently, homiletically. He says, Kiddush B'makam Suda means, do you know where you become Kadosh? Do you know how you achieve holiness? B'makam Suda. The way you become holy is not in the shul. The way you become holy is how you eat. Are you dignified and disciplined? Do you make a baracha? Are you generous? Do you share with others? Are you scrupulous in the laws of kashras? If we, if we eat properly, eating is not just a concession to our mortality. Eating is not just something we have to do because we're humans. Eating is a platform. It's an opportunity to achieve holiness. Kirish, where do you become kadosh? So the Rabbi here says, Our eating is not just get it out of the way or you have to do it or it's the frailty of humanity that we have to eat. Eating is an opportunity to achieve sanctity. The way we eat, the attitude, the manner that we eat. And therefore, our eating, says the Rabbi, mitzvah. Even though the Chaber is right, Rabbi Yosef Karo is right, technically, Yechala calls for salt in the recipe, eh, technically you're good. But, says the Rabbi, mitzvah, nevertheless, we bring salt. Why? To remind ourselves. Every time you come to the table and you see that salt there. Every time you come to the table, you set the table, you bring the salt, you see the salt, that salt should remind you that the eating you're about to do makes you a priest in the temple. That eating is an opportunity. You're on the stage of holiness and of sanctity. says the Ramah, that if you in fact observe the bris melach, if you in fact include salt with your bread all the time, you'll be protected from misfortune. Megan Menaparanios, it protects you from misfortune. So I'll tell you something interesting. How many here, how many people here dip their bread in salt or put salt on the bread on Shabbos? Almost all the hands went up. How many here put the bread, salt on the bread on Tuesday? You go home, you're going to have lunch today. You're going to have salt with your bread? A couple of hands went up. So for some reason, for some strange reason, that's the custom that developed. When in fact, if anything, it should be the opposite. And why, if anything, should be the opposite? Because notice this halacha is in Hilchus B'tziyah Sapasim and Kufsan Zayim. It's nothing to do with Hilchus Shabbos. It's not a law in Shabbos. It's a law in the way you eat bread. Every time you have bread, you're supposed to have it with salt. Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, Shabbos, Monday, breakfast, lunch, dinner. doesn't matter when. Whenever you have bread, you're supposed to have it in salt. And if anything, if there's ever a time not to have it in salt, it's Shabbos. Why? So Rav Shechter has in a Sefer Divrei Harav, which collects the practices of Rabbi Soloveitchik. He quotes here, Minag Hagodor Moshe Salavich Hakadosh Shalolat Hava Prusas Amotzi B'Melach B'Leil Shabbos. 
The custom of Rav Moshe Salavitchik, the Rav's father, was not to dip bread in salt on a Friday night. Why? So he says, the reason wasn't given, but Rav Shechter suggests, the reason we dip is because our table is similar to an altar. The fats did not burn on the altar on Friday night, on Shabbos. They were not offered on Shabbos. So if there's ever a reason, if there's ever a day rather, not to use salt, it's Shabbos. So the fact that people don't use salt during the week and only use it on Shabbos is backwards. The men are to use salt all the time, all seven days of the week. If there's ever a time not to use it, it would be on Friday night. He continues, he says, Shemati may of Menachem Genak, Rav Shechter writes that he heard from Rabbi Genak, Shemis Bachash Salavechik Shabbat Eretz Yisrael, the briskers in Yerushalayim, Lomochem Bechlala Salachem Shaz Pirchas Amotzi, Afil Bimosachol. The briskers don't use salt even in a weekday. They rely on the machaber that our bread always has salt in it, is always seasoned, and therefore they do not uh, salt the bread all, all week long. So this notion, this pasuk, which most people pass by in Parshas Vayikra, seemingly insignificant or irrelevant to us, actually informs a minag that we have. By the way, should you dip the bread in the salt, or should you sprinkle the salt onto the bread? There's different minhagim that people have. Depends what kind of salt shaker you have, or salt. Uh, how many times you've knocked over the little dish with the salt, and you get the salt shaker instead. You know, so uh, there are different customs that have uh, that have developed. The significance of the salt. We'll say one more thing about the salt, and then we got to move on. The the it's, it's very interesting. Saor, which is chametz, and dvash, which is honey, are not allowed on the mizbeach. You have it right here. It's pasuk right before. Page 550. Turn back a page. Any meal offering cannot be made chametz. So what we call matzah was actually what was offered in the Beis HaMeit all year round. Do not cause to go so And no dvash. No date honey. Not talking about bee honey. The Torah talks about dvash. It's talking about date honey. So no um, leaven, no chametz, and no dvash are allowed are allowed to be used. The Rambam in Marnavuchim says, why not? Why not? Why this unusual uh, minag? So the Rambam says, to distinguish our practice, our avoda, our offering of karbonos, from that of idolaters. Idolaters enhance their offering with chametz or with honey, somehow that sweetens, or chametz bread makes more significant, that was the practice of idolaters. And to distinguish us from idolaters, the Rambam in Marnavuchim says that's the reason why we do not, uh, we do not allow, the Torah does not allow chametz or, or dvash with karbonos. Others see these two ingredients as having other symbolic uh, significance. Namely, what are we, we're about to, uh, we're soon going to embark on our preparations for Pesach, and we're going to begin our hunt for eradicating chametz from our midst. What does chametz classically symbolize? Why do we destroy the chametz, the search and destroy mission? Chametz leaven is arrogance, it's the Sahara. it's the evil inclination, it's a sense of haughtiness or hubris. 
And that's why uh, we destroy chametz, even though we're allowed to eat it the rest of the year. Pesach is a reminder to us, even the rest of the year, that we not live our lives as chametz. Chametz has no place on the Mizbeach. Chametz, arrogance, hubris, haughtiness, has no place when you are coming to bring a sacrifice. Dvash. What is dvash? Honey. Sweet. And what does that represent? Sweet. Sweetness. We sometimes have the capacity to sugarcoat things. We sometimes have the capacity to bury a bitter flavor by oversweetening. We add more sugar. And we make something that's not palatable more palatable by adding, by adding uh, a sweetening agent. So you're not allowed to use... Don't try to sweeten your mistakes. Don't coat your, your uh, carbon with dvash. Don't try to sweeten your, your shortcoming. Nor can you bring it with chametz, nor be so arrogant as to bring it with sa'or. Chametz and sa'or are not allowed. And yet, in distinction, in great contradistinction, you have to bring salt. The bris melach. So why? So the great Ishbitzer Rebbe, the Ishbitzer Rebbe was the Meshiloach. So the Meshiloach says that melach, you can't bring honey and you can't bring chametz, but you must bring salt. What is the significance, the symbolism of salt in contrast to honey or to chametz? So the Meshiloach references the Rashi that we began with. Rashi says that God made a promise to the lower waters. Don't worry, don't feel you're left behind. You two are close to me. You two have access to me. The salt of the sea will be used ever-present on the Mizbeach. And says the Meshulach, the Ishmet Tzarebi, Melach more al Yira. Salt is the symbol of Yira Shemayim. Those who crave to draw close to Kosh live with a sense of Yira Shemayim. The act of separating the waters was an act of din, was an act of justice. It reflects, says the Ishmet Tzarebi, our own struggle. The idea that we have a godly soul, and we have an animal instinct. We are on the one hand, Tzalem Elohim, and on the other hand, we have a Nefesh Bahamas. On the one hand, we're an animal. We have animal cravings, an animal intuition, animal impulse, animal desire. We act like animals. On the other hand, we're told to control our animal instinct with the dignity, the discipline of our godly soul. So we have a higher and a lower consciousness simultaneously. We live in two planes. And it's as if God separated Right? The act of din, of separating the upper waters and the lower waters, is like our upper consciousness, our tzelem elokim, our godliness, and our lower consciousness, our animal impulse, that, um, that tempts us. Salt, salt somehow was the result of this lower water, of this lower act of din. So says the Me'ash Yeloch, the Ish B'Tzerebi, Shekol hiskrovasecha betorah uva'avoda uva'mitzvos yebeyira uvezeh yiskayim hakol. What's the reminder of salt? Salt, again, is the um, great salt preserves. So if you want to preserve your noble deeds, if you want to preserve the positive progress you've made in your life, it's with Yerushalayim. Salt is the symbol of Yerushalayim. And by having salt always on the Mizbeach, we remember that we have to have Yerushalayim. And as we think about our own lives and we think about our Shulchan, we think about our table which parallels the altar we have to remember not to sugarcoat our problems we can't smother our mistakes or shortcomings in dvash nor must we approach our table with chametz with a sense of arrogance and hubris but rather we always have salt always remembering that it's Yerashamayim which will preserve whatever, prod, prod, uh, prod, whatever positive 
steps and acts of progress that we have made. Okay, so that's all about the bris melach. Let's keep going in our overview of the parsha. That's the bris melach, and it's the origin of the custom that we have. So don't forget, if you have bread today, it's not a din and Shabbos. You know, most of the customs that we have, people come to the Shabbos table and they know what the challah they mark. They mark the challah with the knife and they dip with salt. And all of these customs have nothing to do with Shabbos. They all appear in Hilchas Betzias Apas. They're the way that you're supposed. And the irony of all of these is that if anything, Shabbos is the time not to do it. Why do you mark the challah with a knife? Anyone know? What do, you have to, what do you have to separate? What do you want to eat the whole challah at that meal? <laughs> Why do we use the knife? Begins the, Begins the cutting and speeds things up. Exactly. So, in Hilchus Betzias Apas it says, on the one hand, it's better to make a bracha on a shlema. It's better to make a bracha on a full challah, on a full roll, than it is something which was previously cut. On the other hand, we don't want there to be a hefsek. We don't want there to be a break between your bracha and when you're going to get to eat the challah. So therefore, you make a little nick. You make a little indent so that you know where you'll need to cut when you're trying to estimate how many people are there or where you're going to cut your first piece that you're going to eat so that you don't have a hefsek. You make a little indent so that you still can preserve it being whole, but yet you know where to begin so that you minimize the break that you'll have. And then you make the bracha and then you go back to the indent and you, and you cut there. That's a Hilchus Betzias Abbas. That's not a Dun Din Shabbos. That's true for Tuesday lunch. If anything, on Shabbos, it says not to make the indent. Why? Because Shabbos, you need Lacha Mishnah. You need two whole loaves. And if you make the dent too indented, then you have compromised it being a Shleimah. It's no longer a whole loaf. It's no longer Lacha Mishnah. So if there's ever a day not to make the indent, it's Shabbos. And you know what happens? Everybody only follows that custom on Shabbos and neglects it during the week. When you should follow the custom during the week, even if not on, on Shabbos. When the Baal Musr say, if you have two choices in front of you, you have an enormous you know, challah from a wedding that they cut a little piece off the end of. It was started, but it's an enormous, beautiful wedding challah. Or you have a tiny little roll, which is whole. Which one should you make hamotzi on? The tiny roll. They say, you see, it's more important to be whole than it is to be big. The Bali Musr say. Being whole, being complete, is more significant than being big. Anyway, okay, let's keep going. Then we have the, so we have the bris melech, then we have the korban shlamim, the description of the peace offering, and then we have the korban chatas, what happens if a person, adam ki nefesh ki sechta bishkaga, person makes a mistake by accident. We have the kohen mashiach, um, if the anointed priest makes a uh, mistake and he has to bring a bowl and then we have the uh, power have of Dabar Shatsibur if a communal mistake and error was made and we have if the Nasi makes a mistake and the individual all of these halachas the detailed minutia of the laws of Karbamas if you uh, lied you violated an oath a guilt offering and so on if you look Parakei Pasakei Chapter 5, verse 5. Page 562. Chapter 5, verse 5. Pasuk says, Chapter 5, verse 5. When one shall become guilty regarding one of these matters, he shall confess what he sinned. And this is a word that repeats itself over and over again. And when it appears, it always appears in this form. Vihis vada. 
What does the word vehisvada mean? What does the word vehisvada? It means we know the root of the word is the same as the word vidui, which means to confess. What form of the verb is it? Vihisvada. Hitpael, which is? Hitpael is reflexive. Hitpael is reflexive. What does it mean to be reflexive? Something that you you do to yourself. It's a very unusual form of the word. So Rav Hirsch points out, Rav Hirsch explains very beautifully that Kirsch Baruch Hu does not need our confession. God already knows what we did wrong. God is already the ever-observer. He's greater than the NSA. God is recording everything. He's observing and supervising everything that's going on in our lives. Rebona Shalom already knows where we came up short. He doesn't need our confession. So, for whom are we confessing? For ourselves. It's for ourselves. Confession is for us. We have to acknowledge our own guilt. We have to confront our own reality. And it's the first step towards tshuva. The Rambam has in his formula, this hakara sachet. We have to recognize that we made a mistake. We have to recognize that we are fallible. We have to recognize that we came up short. And you can't begin to think about offering a sacrifice for guilt, says Refersh. You can't begin to think about offering a korban for your guilt if you've not first acknowledged where you came up wrong. If you are going to be so stubborn and obstinate to maintain your innocence, or you're going to bring a lip service korban, it's fake, it's superficial. You know, it's like when my kid wants to come out of time out. They say, I'm sorry. I say, great, what are you sorry for? And unless they can say what they're sorry for, they're not really sorry. They just want to come out of time out. Or if I want to come out of time out, and I say to Yechevet, I'm sorry. She says, what are you sorry for? I say, I don't know, but I'm, I'm sorry. Whatever it was, I'm sorry. So that apology will not yield reconciliation. If you want to have reconciliation, you have to know what you did wrong. There has to be an admission. You have to be able to look in the mirror and understand where you came up short. So it says Rav Hirsch, that's why we always see this word, vada in the Hitpa'el, in the reflexive form. You're not confessing to God. This is very uh, different than the way we think of confession, certainly in other religions, right? Where you sit opposite somebody and you confess to them your sins. And they tell you, say three of these and two of those, and you're good to go. Right? For us, confession is not something which is recited for anyone else. Not only is it not recited for anyone else, not only do we not praise or encourage you to confess to anyone else, we discourage it. You're not supposed to show off your sins to somebody else. You know, we don't believe in that. As a rabbi, I don't sit and invite people, come tell me, tell me how you've sinned and I will grant you penitence. You're not allowed, you're not, you're not supposed to. Of course, we, you know, if you need to confide in someone because you need their support, their encouragement, their advice or their help, of course that's uh, allowed and encouraged. But we don't confess for anyone else. Not only do we not confess for any other human beings, we don't even confess for the Rebbeinu Shalom. He already knows. For whom do we confess? Says reverse, you see from the form of this verb, we confess exclusively for ourselves. And it's not enough to acknowledge the mistake to ourselves. We have to admit, Asher Chata Aleha. We have to concede guilt to the specific circumstance that preceded the mistake. What did we do? What environment did we allow ourselves to enter? With what friends did we associate or identify? How did we behave that set the stage, that allowed for the circumstances that would cause us to have made the mistake that we made? So, 
Vihisvada, you learn two things from this Pasik says of first. Vihisvada, number one is that confession is not for anyone else, it's for our, our own mistake. Asher Khata Allah for the we're we're seeking atonement, not just for the error of our ways, for our poor judgment. We're seeking atonement for allowing ourselves to even enter the situation to begin with where we might have had that poor judgment. I want to go back to the end of Sefer Shmos. I saw that inside of a verse, and it reminded me of something that uh, the Rav said at the end of Parshas Vayakel. I don't yet have the new Rav Chumash and Vayikra, but I can't have a Parsha class without quoting the Rav Chumash, so we'll go back to Shmos. So at the end of, Sefer, at the end of uh, Parshas Vayakel, if you recall, the Torah tells us about the Kior. So it tells us about the uh, wash basin the Kohanim would wash when they prepared when they came in. And the Rav, Rabbi Soloveitchik, said there, what was, what was it made out of the wash basin? Bimaros Hatzvaos. Vayasas HaKiyor Nechoshes Veskanon Nechoshes I'm in Perak Lamerches Pasuk Hey back in Sefer Shmos I'm sorry, Pasuk Ches and he made the wash stand of copper its base was copper. It was made from the mirrors of the women. And we're all familiar, these were the mirrors the women beautified themselves, attracted, seduced their husbands, were responsible for the continuity, the heroic continuity of the Jewish people, without which the men would have given up long ago. So the Rav says the following, Repentance is predicated on two principles. First, there is the power within to be able to accuse themselves. Ability to think of themselves as unworthy and inferior. In our declaration on Yom Kippur, and you are justified for all that befalls us, for you have acted correctly and we have acted evilly, emerges the expression of that wonderful power of full, boundless self-accusation. So the first part of repentance is the ability, the humility to realize that we're fallible, that we make mistakes. Second, there is the great talent of each individual to cleanse himself, to comprehend the boundless hidden spiritual powers which are found in the human personality, which propel one in the direction of return to the sovereign of the universe. This is the ability of a person to ascend and elevate himself to the majestic heights, if only one has the will to do so, even after he has sunk to the depths of the abyss of impurity. So the first step of tshuva is to realize you're not perfect, to recognize that we're fallible. The second step of tshuva is to then yearn for greatness, not to be not to sink low, not to be despondent and to say I'm so fallible and pathetic and miserable, I'm an oisvaf and a reject, I look at the mistakes I made, but to say I'm capable of greatness, I yearn, I aspire. The second principle is just as important as the first. A man cannot engage in repentance if he does not have the boldness to accuse and condemn himself. Here's the part I wanted to share with you. Without recognition of the sin, there can be no regret. On the other hand, there cannot be commitment for the future if man has no faith in his own creative abilities, if he does not believe in his own talents, which will aid him in sanctifying himself, if he believes that he is helpless and subservient to natural mechanical powers, if he is not convinced of the freedom of the human creative act, he cannot feel his guilt and there is no basis to expect he will change. Within the greatness of man lies the greatest accusative act, and from it comes the call to repentance. If a man looks upon himself as an impotent creature, then the position of the sinner is helpless. Every confession expresses itself in the outcry that we have to see the beauty in ourselves. And so he says, Moses did not understand how the mirrors the women employed while they ornamented themselves with their husbands, gaining pleasure from their own beauty, could be properly incorporated in the washstand. The washstand, which was adjacent to the Mizbeach, 
where a Jew brings his sacrifice of atonement, on which he recites confession with a broken heart. Right? Moshe turns to the Shalom and says, he protests. How could you put this kiyor right here next to the Mizbeach? This is the holiest spot. This is where you come for repentance. This is where you come when you admit you were wrong and you're seeking to grow and to aspire for greatness. And this is where you put the mirrors where the women with their vanity looked in those mirrors and beautified themselves and seduced their husbands for physical pleasure. Moshe protested to God, you cannot put these kiyor, this wash basin with these mirrors right here next to the Mizbeach. Given that the Mizbeach and the Kiyor seem to represent two mutually exclusive motifs, the physical proximity of the two seems strange, said the Rav. How can the beauty of the mirrors harmonize with the sensation of self-criticism with which the road to the altar is bound? And listen to what he says. The sovereign of the universe, the Ribbona Shalom, said to Moshe, accept it. The women, the woman who knows she is beautiful, who was able in Egypt in the bitter and dark exile to comfort and strengthen her husband and raise a generation thirsty for redemption, that same woman, woman, when she will transgress, will recite her confession with hot tears and more grief and regret than any other person. This woman will remember her supreme efforts to maintain the continuity of our people under terribly adverse conditions. And later, if she fails to meet that standard, the guilt feeling will be increasingly impressed upon her conscience. Said Rabbi Salavechik, the kior with the mirror belonged exactly next to the altar. Because before you could come to the Mizbeach and seek atonement, you got to look in the mirror. You have to be willing to look in the mirror. So the mirror is not just a tool of vanity. The mirror is how we confront the reality of ourselves. The reality of ourselves. Right? You look in the mirror and say, I can't believe the way this mirror makes me look. That's the way you look. That's not the mirror doing anything. Right? When we want to talk about somebody who has to confront something, we say we held a mirror up to them. Holding a mirror up to society. A mirror is the way we confront our own reality. So said the Rav, before you can approach the Mizbeach, the altar, and seek atonement, you first have to look in the mirror and know who you are. And that's what Refersh was saying here, Vihisvada. Vihisvada is reflexive. You're not confessing for Hashem. You're not confessing for anyone other than yourself. Confession is reflexive. We confess for ourselves because before we can approach the Mizbeach, before we can achieve, uh, achieve atonement or seek atonement, we first have to admit the error of our own ways. Let's go back to the beginning of the parsha. The small olive. Parsha begins with the small olive. Article preserves it here in the Stone Chumash. Vayikra with the olive Zeira. Why is there a small olive here? There are many, many different suggestions which are given. The small olive. So the Balaturim gives the famous answer of humility. What's the humility? Moshe has humility. How is that reflective of Moshe's humility? So the Balaturim says that when God summoned Bilam, it says Vayakar. Vayakar, what's the difference between Vayakar and Vayikra? What's the difference if you have the Aleph or you don't have the Aleph? Without the Aleph, it's Lashon Mikra. It sounds like happenstance or chance. God chanced on Bilam. God didn't single out Bilam. God didn't have a rendezvous with Bilam. God didn't have an intimate connection with Bilam. That was chance. He happened upon Bilam. 
Whereas with Moshe, with Yikra, God called. What does it mean to call someone? You call someone close. You call someone to be close to you. It doesn't say Vaidaber. Afterwards it says Vaidaber Shemir love. It says Vayikra. God first called Moshe, come, I want to be close to you. I want to feel close to you. And only then did he speak to him. So Moshe, in his great humility, says the Balaturim was uncomfortable with this. As if he's the chosen one of God, he's different than anyone else. He was uncomfortable being singled out. So therefore he insisted it be Vayikra like with Bilam. And God said, no, you can't do that. My relationship with you is very different than it is with Bilam. So they reached a compromise. And as a small aleph representing that compromise, it's the humility of Moshe that he didn't want to be singled out as having that special relationship. The Chassam Sofer and others ask a great question. What's their question? Is this the first time the word Vayikra is used since we've met Moshe? No, go back all the way to the Sneh. So why did Moshe wait until now to insist that it not appear as if he had this close relationship with Hashem different than everyone else. Moshe couldn't have said it earlier. Why did Moshe wait till now? Yes? Correct, but, but that word is used earlier. God has summoned him and called him earlier. So true, the access was not as great earlier, but God called him earlier. So if Moshe didn't want the word Vayikra associated with his name because it made him look so great, so good, he should have protested earlier when the word Vayikra was first used. Why does he wait to protest until now? Like I said, I'm so far asked this, as do others. A number of answers are given. <coughs> A number of answers are given. Um, I'll tell you one now, and I'll let you think of the rest. Rav, um, Rav Yanka Lagalinsky, in his Sefer of the Higarata, he says that when Hashem called Moshe until now, it was always on behalf of Klal Yisrael. And when Moshe has been summoned until now as the leader of the Jewish people, he was not entitled to forego the honor that was due to him. We have a principle, a king who tries to forego the honor due to him may not forego the honor, has to accept that honor. That a Talmachacham, somebody who's in a position of Srara, someone who's in an official capacity, doesn't only represent themselves, they represent their position. And they're not entitled to be more casual or foregoing on the honor that's due to their position. So until now, Moshe didn't protest because the Vayikra was not reflective of him, was reflective of him as the leader, the representative of the Jewish people. But now this is the first time that God is calling Moshe to the Olmoed, the Kriya Shachiba Baro. This is an expression of affection between God and Moshe specifically. God wants to feel close to Moshe, qua Moshe, not Moshe as the leader of the Jewish people. And it's now that Moshe is being singled out as a private citizen, not as a official leader, now is when Moshe protests. That's the answer of Yankel Galinsky gives. There are many other answers which are given. So that's the Balaturim. The Da'alaf's ear, the small Aleph, reflects the humility of Moshe. The Kliyakar gives another answer. The Kliyakar says the Aleph's ear is a hint. The Medrash tells us that when children begin to learn Chumash, where do we begin to teach them from? Sefer Vayikra. And how do you know you begin to teach them from Sefer Vayikra? The small Aleph. The Aleph's era stands for young children. 
we begin to teach young children from Sefer Vayikra. Now if I had to open, not only to any book in Chumash, but any place in all of Tanakh, to think about where to start to teach young children Chumash, I think the very last place I would look would be Sefer Vayikra. It's minutiae, it's details, it's laws, it's tedious, it's, forgive me, but somewhat boring, we don't relate to it. What is the significance of teaching children from Sefer Vayikra? This custom. And I think the answer is sacrifice. The whole theme of Sefer Vayikra is Adam Kiyakrav Mikhem. Adam, you want to be a man? Adam. It doesn't say Ish. It says Adam. Adam reminds us of Adam Arishon. You want to fulfill your purpose in creation? You want to fulfill the purpose of humanity? Kiyakrav Mikhem. When you're willing to sacrifice Mikhem, be a person who's willing to sacrifice. Be a giver, not a taker. Be a compromiser, not a stubborn person. Be somebody who's willing to sacrifice. That is the core, essential quality of life, of relationships, of marriage, of work, of every area of life. Be a giver, not a taker. Be somebody who's willing to sacrifice. Not sacrifice as we think of it in the you know, punitive sense that you're going through the pain of sacrifice. But be someone who's willing to compromise. Be somebody who's willing to give. Be somebody who's willing to sacrifice. That word karban, Rafir says, the root of the word karban is karov. If you want to draw close to God, you've got to be willing to give. Relationships are the result of parties giving, compromising towards one another. That's the result of a rich relationship. So Adam, you want to fulfill the purpose of creation? You want to be an Adam? Kiyakrav mikem. Be willing to give mikem of yourself. Not just the karban. Forget that you went out and bought the piece of meat and made it to the Mishalayim and offered it on the Mizbeach. But Mikem, the personal sacrifice, the personal compromise that you have to be willing to offer. And that's perhaps the suggestion why historically and traditionally we Jews begin teaching our children from Vayikra. Because we know, and I don't know if this has ever been true for a generation more than ours, with our children who are so blessed with everything that they have. But we begin to teach them by teaching them Vayikra, carbon that you have to be willing to compromise and sacrifice and give. Life is not about you and your happiness and your needs and what you want and your satisfaction. Life is not about your rights and entitlements. Life is about your duties and obligations. It's what you can bring to the world. What sacrifice, what are you willing to do in order to contribute positively to people around you and to the world? And that's the Aleph Zeira, the message of where we begin to teach children. I wanted to share a lot more. This uh, handout that we not, never got to comes from the Chaban. I had introduced you previously to Rav Chaim Kohn, and he has a beautiful interpretation of this word Vayikra and the small Aleph. I really wanted to get into that. But we're out of time. But for the women who are here, every Wednesday morning at 8.45 at my home, I have an Amuna shear for women with coffee. No donuts, but coffee. And uh, the women are invited. Tomorrow morning, 8.45. Maybe we'll go through this then. Rav Chaim Kohn, the Chaban, on why the small Aleph and what it means for our lives, living with Amuna in our lives. And that, that also gets recorded and put up on Why You Torah if you want to listen to it. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. And a wonderful week. Thank you.